Businesses, brace yourself. Another wave of ADA lawsuits is hitting the valley. A controversial group filed another 133 cases, bringing their total to more than 1,500 lawsuits. Advocates for individuals with disabilities says their mission is all about compliance, not money. But that's not what businesses tell ABC 15 investigator Dave Biskamek. Hello, and welcome to our summer series of On Assignment, conversations with past DuPont winners and other venerable reporters who come up to the journalism school. I'm Lisa Cohen, and if you've listened in the past, you know that I'm the director of the DuPont Columbia Awards here at the J School. Abby Wright, my colleague, is on vacation this week, so I'm flying solo. This month, I'm going to be bringing you a conversation I had recently with Dave Biskoping, and he's an investigative reporter out of Phoenix, ABC 15, which is a local ABC affiliate, and he's a 2018 DuPont winner. Here at DuPont, we have a really big commitment to local investigative reporting. We honor tenacious, impactful investigations, and Dave and his team did just that. It was uh, for an ongoing series called Cash for Compliance, and when I say ongoing, I mean ongoing. They went after a group called AID, or AID, and that stands for the Long-Winded Advocates for Individuals with Disabilities Foundation, which already sounds a little suspicious to me. As the name suggests, AID purports to be advocating for the disabled, but really there is important law that is meant to protect the disabled. It's called the Americans for Disabilities Act, and Dave proved that this AID group and their lawyer, a guy named Peter Stronick, were actually perverting the law for their own gain. If the ABC 15 team hadn't stopped them, AID stood to make millions off of it. Dave won a DuPont for his reporting all of last year, but the story is still going on, and at the end, I'm going to tell you about a new development that happened since he and I had this original conversation. But first, here's ABC 15's Dave Biskabing talking about his 2018 DuPont winning Cash for Compliance. As usual, this is an edited conversation. And as an added bonus, every once in a while, you're actually going to hear a brief clip from the TV reports themselves. It's so exciting to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. Actually, it's just me. Abby is away today, but uh, um, Dave Biskabing. I'm going to get your name right, right from the beginning. That sounded perfect. Congratulations on your DuPont win. Thank you so much. We're very honored here. Yeah, it's fantastic. And this is for the 2018 DuPont Columbia Awards, and you won for a seemingly never-ending series of stories called Cash for Compliance. It still hasn't ended. Uh, sometimes I, I wonder when the end will be. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the entry that you submitted referred to you as relentless. And I think that was the judge who looked at your entry said that's incredibly fitting. And it's sort of like the energizer bunny, I think, was a term that was thrown around. It's just, you know, <laughs> it just keeps on going, keeps on going. All right. Why are these people so upset with ABC 15 investigator Dave Biskabing? It's because of the three-month investigation you're about to see. So here's Dave to explain. This is all about parking lots, parking lots, and disability access. Under the American so the, the entry was cash for compliance, and did it start off as a series, or did that just sort of mutate into one? It, it did and it, it didn't. So we had anticipated that we would make it several stories right when we were going to first our broadcast publishing it, uh, we got a tip about some lawsuits being filed, a couple dozen at the time, and we were going to do a simple individual story about that. But as we started looking into it, we realized that this was more than just your 
a typical plaintiff filing a couple dozen um, or even a couple hundred ADA lawsuits, which is happens all over the place in pretty much every state, every major city. Um, and we realized that this group was unique and uh, and pretty audacious. And um, and so we pressed pause and we really started to dig into who they were, what was going on. So then we decided to launch it as a as a couple parts that would run over a, a series of a couple days initially, and then uh, it just kept. It snowballed. Expanding. It did. It certainly did. Um, Can you go back and, you know, you threw around the term ADA and just give us a real simple thumbnail sketch. What is Cash for Compliance? Okay. ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, 1991, it was passed, requires many things of uh, businesses and public accommodations, um, everything from certain regulations in your parking lot to even your bathrooms and your facilities uh, to make them accessible to persons with all different types of disabilities. And that is an ever-changing amount of uh, regulations. Now, because there are so many requirements, it's important that people with disabilities, if they can't get compliance, that they have an opportunity to file lawsuits in order to do that. And that's been a something that's been used for since its passage. But there is a subset who some people believe are abusing that law so that lawyers and their plaintiffs can cash in on uh, this type of non-compliance. And that was certainly the case with our group. So this is not a story about people who are not complying with the Americans for Disabilities Act. That was never our goal. Uh, our goal was to always look at this group that we felt was exploiting this law for financial gain. You know, our position has always been, if you're a business, you should be compliant. But this group was one that we thought was taking this and actually doing harm to a very well-intentioned, vitally important law. So let me just to be clear, they would sue thousands of people and they would they would not particularly want to go to court. They were looking to settle for smaller amounts of money. They never wanted to go to court. They'd send a letter along with their lawsuits. There's no point in fighting this. You might as well just pay it. I mean, that's the gist of what they wrote them. They never wanted these to go to trial uh, because the, the whole goal was to extract um, settlements. In 2010, there was a new regulation that was put into place that said signs have to be at least 60 inches off the ground, the bottom of the sign, uh, one of these disability parking signs. Because it was passed many years after the initial ADA, almost no parking lot followed this regulation. So they knew they could literally go to every parking lot down any street and they were going to find people out of compliance. They had people that they hired, not a person with disabilities, people that they hired by the parking lot to drive around any parking lot they could find in the Phoenix area and look at their signs. So they would look and they'd say, okay, that sign's not 60 inches, we're going to sue them. They could have everything else perfect, but that that sign was 50 inches or 48 inches and not 60 inches, they sued them, typically between $5,000 and $7,500 per parking lot. And so we would find that there would be, on every corner of an intersection, several businesses that were sued. And they actually ended up suing 1,700 businesses in Phoenix before our stories prompted the attorney general's office to come in and freeze it. uh, Got a judge to freeze so they couldn't file any more lawsuits while there was litigation ongoing. And you're talking about $5,000 per business. It's not that much money, but this is adding up. We had found that just in their first couple hundred businesses that they sued, they ended up making, before the attorney general's office stepped in, they had made well over a million dollars just from a couple hundred businesses. And they were on pace. If you know that average would have played out over all of the businesses, they would have made 
millions and millions and millions of dollars. Massive new developments today in ABC 15's investigation of a group of serial sewers who've been taking aim at Valley businesses. The Attorney General's office now stepping in and it could shut them down. So AG officials told me they stepped in specifically because of our investigation and the things we uncovered about aid. And they were actually primed to file another 9,000, I believe, uh, lawsuits as well, but they were frozen from doing so. They had them ready to go, and they just hadn't filed them yet. Now, were they doing anything illegal? Not on its face, um, and that was a discussion we had. You know, what they're doing is not illegal, but just because something isn't illegal doesn't make it right. So what kind of investment do you make before you say to yourself, we're going to put a lot of resources behind this. We have a story. We're going to go for it. And what are the resources that you're putting behind it? The, the, the major resource is time, right? That is the, the, the biggest consideration is what we're putting into this story, taking away from other potential important stories that, that uh, my team and I can be covering. And when it comes to uh, this, this topic, we put a lot of time into it. I mean, we spent weeks where we did not do much else besides digging through records, uh, going down to the courthouse, talking to business owners, doing surveillance on uh, the plaintiff and some of the other parties involved. Uh, for, for me and my producer that I work with, this is about all we spent a, a fair portion of a good month or two on for a while in the, in the middle of uh, 2016. Yeah, so who's your team? It's just, it's just you and a producer? My team is um, myself. I have a producer, Sean Martin, who works on just about all major projects with me, and we have a photojournalist, Gerard Watson, and that is our, that is our typical team on a, a major investigation. So you're the ones who are doing all the courtroom searches and putting in we the, do it the all. footwork? Yep. And it, the if, it, if it's going on air and if there's something that went behind it, it uh, it's, it's us that, that is that has put it together. And so the three of you are the ones that are sitting in a van somewhere surveilling for, yes. I, don't know how long, I don't know how long <laughs> yeah. at a stretch. That's like, correct. There's this, there's this great moment where you sort of bust one of the vic so-called victims who says he, he can't walk without a cane and he's you know a real invalid and so this is all very important to him. Did you know as soon as you sat down with him that he was lying to you when he was talking to you? Well, we walked in the door, and he says, sorry, I can't get up to greet you. Um, it's too hard for me to get out of my chair. Obviously, I didn't get up to greet you. It's not easy to get up and out of my chair. He says he had hip surgery last year. How do you get around as a cane? As a well, I hope it's with a cane. Bad days, I'm in a wheelchair. And then he repeated that as we began our interview as well. It's a point he wanted to make. And so once he made that, I, we walked out of that interview, and I said to Jerry, my photographer, do you have anything going on the rest of the day? And he goes, um, <laughs> nothing else. I'm like, well, maybe we should wait here for a couple hours and see if he goes and runs an errand or something. And sure enough, there he was walking around. When he couldn't get up out of his chair to greet us, he, he had no problem later in the day. And then there's this surveillance footage of him, you know, walking around and everything's great. And we see the, you know, 10 seconds where you bust him. What, what is the rest of the shoot like? Like, how long does it go on? What oh, are you thinking? We, we spent hours waiting for those moments. There were some days we went out there and did not um, have the opportunity. In, in his case, we got a little lucky in the fact that his driveway just happens to line up perfectly with a public street across the road. So we could look from quite a ways down and have that glimpse right into there without uh, sticking out too much ahead of time. And that is one of the things that we wanted to have nailed down before we ever even approached this group. Were they doing what they were saying they were doing? Was this guy 
truly necessarily needing a cane in every situation? Was he even going to these businesses? Because we never saw him going to any of the businesses, and then they confirmed he never did. And then also, um, when we interviewed him, we already had an idea of whether or not he was going to be truthful for us, and it turns out he was not. What's the decision-making process where you're, you, you kind of give up the ghost at a certain point? What, when you're sitting in the van for 20 hours or two days or whatever, when do you say, okay, we're, we're done, we're not going to get it, let's go? It really becomes, you look at, in this case, what's the return on the investment? And, and, and that's in terms of, for the public, what do they need us to get in order to have done our investigative journalism and to done the story justice and to do it right? Um, we thought it was very important to test the theory of his disability. Um, was, was he someone with a disability? Was he misrepresenting himself to the public and therefore using that to extract millions of dollars from businesses? That was something that we thought we needed to get. And we did get it three different times, um, as you saw. We actually missed once in our story, and it's just because the camera takes a second to, to, to start recording. We caught him carrying a big, giant, heavy box, and we missed it. Uh, um, and I wish we would have got it that moment, but um, you know, we in that case we thought we needed to to get that shot. When it comes to other things, um, it really just depends. If they, if we think it's vital to the story, we'll probably do whatever it takes to to make it happen. That's why we went to pay him another visit. Well, you said you don't make a dime from it, but you no, pay yourself I, a salary out of it. I, no, I didn't say that. You have things a little screwed up, David. Also, one other thing: uh, how long have you been walking without a cane? Whenever I get a chance, if it's a few feet, I don't walk more than about, in fact, I don't have it in this one. I carry a cane in the car with me just but, because. But not today? I don't have it in here today because I just expected to walk. It appears this day, he also didn't have a disability placard or license plate. You told us that you hope you'd be able to get around just with a cane, never without a cane. Have you exaggerated no, to I us? I didn't say that. I have it on tape. David. In the country. State. And so these people initially, they sat down and did interviews with you. How do you get people who are subjects of an investigation, an aggressive investigation, to sit down and, and agree to be put under the microscope? Um, we had been looking into this group for a while, and we were discussing how do we approach them to get them to do an interview. Well, it just so happens they were sending out press releases. They were giving away wheelchairs and things like that. And so they were touting what they do and how they do it. And so we just called them and we said, we'd love to talk to you about your group, the things that you're doing, the compliance issues that you're raising, and how it all works. And they offered themselves up for an interview at first. And so we sat down with them and then we had a full interview with the attorney. And to our surprise, he sat down for almost an hour. Um, so you, he, he sits down in the chair originally because he's had this spate of good press from other people or he's had yes. a, a few reports and yep. it's good press and it, it makes them look good, probably helps them with business. And is there a point, is there a point in the interview where suddenly he realizes that's not what this is going to be? We actually, going into this, we talked to them while they arrived um, that we wanted to discuss what they do, how they do it, because that's why we asked them to bring their lawyer. And, and they did. And so we discussed with them the fact that, you know, we knew that based on some of the compliance issues, there gonna be some, there's going to be some criticism, and we want to touch on that. And I honestly thought he might get up after a handful of, of really direct questions about what they're doing, and he didn't. Why do you think people like that do that? Why, 
why don't they immediately close down? I think that they really thought they were going to win the PR battle. Um, and I think that's kind of part of the, the exploitation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think that they thought that any negative press could be easily pushed aside by saying, we're doing this on behalf of people with disabilities, shame on you for your discrimination. And I think that they overestimated the cover that the ADA would give them. Because like as you saw, we interviewed many prominent advocates actual advocates in our area and none of them wanted anything to do with this group and all you know denounced them entirely and so I, I think that they thought that they could bluster their way through this um, and through our investigation without with in coming out unscathed so Stroynik, can I talk to you about your lawsuit that you filed against the AG last week? Mr. Stroynik doesn't want to talk about AIDS newest lawsuit. Your reports are so inaccurate that I will no longer interview with you. So at a certain point, this lawyer, you I don't know how many times you interviewed him where he did it voluntarily, but at a certain point you start, uh, you know, just kind of showing up where he is or trying to do an interview that he doesn't want to do. Um, we never approached the lawyer anywhere than outside of court. So it's not like we staked him out of this house or anything like that. We spoke to him every time there was a major development in their situation outside of court, and that's where we caught him. Were you here a minute ago when I told you that I don't talk to lying reporters like yourself? Mr. Stroynik, with all due respect, the courts have found you to be misleading, using bait-and-switch, bad-bait tactics, so we're going to ask the questions regardless whether or not you like the reporter or not. So they weren't ambush interviews so much, or doorstop door um, interviews, as we like to No, call. every time that we had to talk to them about whether their cases were dismissed or them filing cases in other states, we had asked them all those questions uh, ahead of time in writing, or not necessarily questions, we had sent them our findings. You know, we need to uh, talk to you about this. And sometimes that they would respond, and sometimes he would send me some of the most uh, interesting and colorful emails I've ever received. Interesting and colorful, you mean filled with attacks? Uh, I wouldn't say you know obscene language, but at one point he was calling me a perverse antisocial cheerleader, and, and I don't even know what that means to this day. <laughs> and, and they kept saying that we, um, you know, we, we hate people with disabilities and you know our hatred towards people with disabilities is uh, clear. Uh, he's clever. I will, I will always give him that. We've also asked State about their involvement in other states outside of court. Do you guys have a comment on that? I don't know if you were here a minute ago when I said I don't give interviews to you because you lie. Well, I'm still going to ask you questions. You are fake news. But here's some truth. Well, so one of the things that he did that was so, I found chilling, was to you know, brand you with the moniker fake news. And that's just something that is happening so much nowadays. Uh, what was that like for you? It, you know, it was a little surprising. I mean, this lawyer, uh, despite the unethical issues of what he's doing, he's a smart guy. Um, and, and he's really worked the, the loopholes in the legal system to um, put this operation together. I was a little surprised that he went there that low, you know, that simple. Um, but I, I think that also then spoke volumes to the strength of our reporting and the fact that he had no other response to give. And when you're in a moment like that where you're following somebody down the street or you're trying to, you know, pose a tough question to them, do you have a game plan going in? Do you sit and, like, map out how you're going to do it or, you know, rehearse or anything like that? I don't. Um, I know some reporters like to have that one question. I, I know some reporters like to try and get them to answer one thing. I know what I want to talk about because I've been investigating the story. I know the issues. Um, I feel if you try to map it out, it, it never goes the way you plan. So you just have to go in there and just think to yourself, you know, just be professional and see what they say. I mean, sometimes the strength in those situations is just to listen 
to what they're saying to you or not saying to you and go from there because it never goes the way you plan. It never does. So you're a print journalist by nature or by origin, I guess? Yes, by origin. That'd be the correct way to put it. There's such a big challenge in video versus the print side of investigative stories. They're already, you know, deep investigations are already so hard to winnow down and make accessible to readers. But then when you add the visual element to it and you you have the constraints of time and, you know, what, what you're going to expect people to get at a first pass, you know, can you talk a little bit about what it's like trying to take all this material and get it on the air in a manageable format? It can be incredibly challenging, especially when you're looking at a project to the scope of what we did in this cash for compliance series. I have two massive whiteboards that we have in our office, and those are reserved for the really complicated stories. And what I do is I, I throw stuff up on the board. What are the main points we have to hit? What is our main pieces of sound and our key uh, findings, interview moments? And from there, you, you have to identify what those are, and then you have to figure out how you're going to break those out. Because writing for print in a in almost inverse you know, pyramid type of style where, where you want to make sure people understand the significance of what you're telling. That's, that doesn't work the same. In, right, you in, don't in have TV. the nut graph at the top of the piece. Right, the it does would. not work. It is all about storytelling. The, the most significant findings in our cash for compliance stories came towards the end of our reports. And it's building to moments. And, it's, and so it's, it's such a challenge when you have such important things you need to tell the public to build those stories so that you don't lose interest. You've disseminated all the facts you need to get out, but also keep people watching because otherwise people will not watch right. and, people, and then people will never know what you have to tell them. Right. And then you also have the challenge of you're immersing yourself in this world where you're getting to learn all the lingo, the jargon. It starts to sound like regular English words to you. And then you have to kind of take a step back when you're writing it and putting it together and make sure that you have translated everything. It is one of the biggest challenges. I often will write a draft. I try to write all my most important sound bites and moments in, and then I try to just write a draft through. And I, I think about just getting it all down. And I, I can't even tell you on, on this cash for compliance story how many times I rewrote those first two stories and, and how they changed over time and, and figuring out ways to make the Americans with Disabilities Act and compliance and, and to tell that and to make people understand it without getting caught in in kind of the minutia of things that people don't even necessarily need to know, right. but still making sure that they understand the full significance of what it is and, and, and why it's important. Right. So what is it that people need to know, how to explain it in a way that's comprehensible and lively and concise? And what can you leave out and still have this work and make sense? And that's really hard to do. It is. And sometimes you need to have some other people in your newsroom have no idea what the story is, kind of watch it and, and ask them, what do you or don't you understand and what else are you left wondering? And, you know, if, if they say, I don't, what about this? I mean, because the other challenge is in, is you get so close to these stories and you spend so much time in them and you're involved in them for months and then you write it. There are some things that you understand just because you've worked on it for right. so long that no one else would understand. Right. It's almost like you're speaking another language at a certain Ex- point. Entirely. So how does it work with an investigative story at your station? Do you have lawyers? Do you have standards people? Who, who, what are the layers that it has to go through? 
I'm awfully lucky here. I've been at my station for almost 10 years now. Um, I've been doing investigative reporting here for seven years. So they place a, a tremendous amount of trust into what I do. Um, I, I work with a pretty broad autonomy. I often get to pick my topics um, based on my sources and, and what I see in our area may rise to the level of something that needs to be investigated. Um, when we're reporting, I keep my assistant news director and my news director informed about what I'm working on and what I'm looking into. Um, and they kind of leave it up to me to see where's that going? Is it something that we should pull out of? Is it something that's rising to an even bigger level? And so then when we get into the final production, the, the writing and presentation, that's when my, my newsroom gets more involved. And then almost in every major story, we do send it to one of our, our company's top uh, lawyers who will review it um, for both legal reasons, but also to provide kind of a standards interpretation as well. Are we making too big a deal of something that's too small or too small a deal of something that's really big? Um, and so um, that, is, that is something that we do in almost all of our major projects. What is happening now in the story? You, I know that uh, it sounds as though you shut these folks down in Phoenix, but they've branched out into other states? They have. They are running into legal hurdles now because of what we've uncovered. Um, so in New Mexico, they had all their cases dismissed for a unethical scheme in which they filed on behalf of their plaintiff. She claims she had no knowledge. In Nevada, the Attorney General's office is challenging them in federal court. So that's tied up in, in litigation. Colorado, they've been allowed to kind of do what they're doing, um, and no one has stepped in there yet. Hasn't he ever, hasn't he ever sued you? I mean, I would think we that would be the first would, thing he did. And do. he didn't. And perhaps that's because if they did, we might get discovery. And then we um. would learn a lot more about their operation a lot quicker than they'd want. Do you ever feel concerned about the fact that these guys, I mean, they're losing, I don't know, tens, tens, of, millions of, dollars. tens of millions of dollars? Yeah, yes. Uh, that they might come back at you in some scary way? I don't know if I, wor I don't worry about any, but my physical safety, you know, and I don't want to insinuate that at all. But they did when they were setting up these entities in other states. They registered some of those entities' websites in, with my personal home address. So, um, for example, when they were saving domain names for, you know, utahada.com or washingtonada.com or kansasada.com, they saved two of those at least, um, or registered two of those at least using my personal home address. For what reason? I don't know. Is that, is that the worst thing that anyone's ever done to come after you? I mean, I've had politicians, you know, in town um, put out wild accusations about me claim that I've worked for their other opponents in political races, things like that, uh, blocked me from public buildings. But this was the most unusual. Is there a piece of advice or something that you've learned over your years doing this kind of work that you would offer up? I think the one question I always ask myself is whenever we're investigating something and we get that who, what, where, when, and why, I always then stop and think to myself, is there another layer there? Is there someone, is there a who behind the who? Is there a, a, a why behind the why? How can this be expanded just a little bit more so that we're, we're getting to the heart of something that people would otherwise never know? So it's, it's always just kind of finding that next layer. That's, that's how I approach every story. Never stop questioning if there's someone else or something else behind what you're looking at. That's, a, that's great advice. Thank you so much for talking to us today. And again, congratulations on your win. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Dave Biscobang, who's doing really such important work. 
One thing that stuck out for me in his reporting is how the people being sued are mostly these little mom and pop shops. And they're people for whom five and $10,000 settlements can actually be devastating. Anyway, to bring you up to date, thanks to ABC 15's reporting, aid was shut down in Phoenix. A state judge called a halt to them, filing all of these cases. But then the lawyer, Peter Stroenick, started doing it all on his own. He was filing cases in federal court asking for some $600,000 in additional settlements. There was some good news that just happened uh, since I had this conversation with Dave. This month, a judge suspended the lawyer altogether. And that will stop him from practicing until the state investigation finishes, and that could take months. I'm sure Dave will continue to keep this story in the spotlight. Thanks for listening. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and the Columbia Journalism School. Our producer was Sarah Wyman with help from Lauren Mirgildo Santos. Join us again next month for another episode of On Assignment.